Welcome to episode 14 of Interviewing the Interviewer. I am Eric Princeton Lobel, journalism student at Northwestern University, and this is my podcast where I interview sports broadcasters and writers. My guest today is the lead anchor for the Big Ten Network, Dave Revson, a Northwestern alum, joining me on this episode. Great to talk with Dave. We talked first about the fact that he didn't study journalism at Northwestern. He was a history major, and his first job out of college was not in broadcasting. He was working at a bank in Manhattan. So we discussed how we went from that to um, landing a job at ESPN and now as the lead anchor at BTN. We also talked about the different skills he applies as both an anchor, a play-by-play broadcaster, and an author of a book. And... We dove a little bit into the interview he did with Big Ten Commissioner Kevin Warren the day the Big Ten decided to postpone its fall football season, and we we discussed some interviewing techniques and how he approached that. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dave Revson on episode 14 of Interviewing the Interviewer. Here with Dave Revson, the lead anchor on the Big Ten Network. Dave, thanks so much for taking some time to join me today. Yeah, my pleasure, Eric. Good to be on with you. So we'll get to a bunch of different uh, aspects of your career, but I wanted to first ask you, when did you first realize that you wanted to go into sports broadcasting in some capacity? Well, it's pretty early for me. I would say I probably first had an interest in it at about age six or seven, Uh, I grew up in Chicago in what was really a golden age of sportscasters in the city. Probably for me as a White Sox fan growing up, probably the most famous name was Harry Carey, who of course really went on to fame as a Cubs announcer, but was the announcer for the White Sox when I became a White Sox fan. And uh, I had a real affinity for him. The Cubs had a great play-by-play guy in Jack Brickhouse. very famous announcer as well. At that time, local sports casts carried a lot of weight. It was that was kind of where you got your sports news. It was before ESPN. I'm I'm kind of old, and so and we had a, and some incredible ones in Chicago as well. Uh, Tim Weigel, who's a Northwestern grad, was was a personal favorite. But Johnny Morris was a, a wonderful sportscaster in the city. Chet Kopic, who just passed away lately was you know kind of bombastic and really well known and it just seemed to me I think I was uh had enough self-actualization even at a pretty early age to know I probably wasn't going to be able to play sports professionally but this was kind of the next best thing uh so I would like turn down the sound in my room and uh, on my little black and white tv I'd write down the lineups for the White Sox game whoever they were playing and I'd do play-by-play of the game or I played a board game called Stratomatic Baseball uh, which I think still kind of exists to this day. And uh, I would announce those games too. So I was definitely very, very into it. But I would say that I also was kind of realistic. And so when I was at Northwestern, I, I kind of hedged my bets. I wasn't a journalism or broadcast major. I was a history major. I did some other things after I graduated from college and then kind of came to the realization a couple of years in that if I didn't give this a shot, I would never forgive myself. And so just kind of gave it a whirl to see how it would go. and. I'd say it's worked out pretty well. <laughs> so uh, happy with, with how everything is, is kind of played out. 
because you were you were an investment banker, right? The uh, the right when you graduated from school. Yeah, that might be overstating what I did. Uh, I worked so I when I graduated the first year I was out, I actually had a scholarship and went and studied in Ireland, which was a really good year for me because I, I think that. Had I not done that, I probably would have gone to law school. I had done really well in the LSAT and had applied to some law schools and gotten accepted to, to some pretty good places. And and but I got the scholarship to go to Ireland, and so I kind of you know was able to put law school off for a year. And uh, not that there's anything wrong with going to law school. I think just for me, it, there was really no reason why I was doing it. I just didn't know what else to do. And so I, I came back and realized, okay, well, I'm not going to do that. And so I deferred it and, and just applied for jobs. And I ended up getting a job with Chase Manhattan Bank to be in New York in kind of their management training program. And it was really the most miserable year of my life, Eric. I was so unhappy. And, and I think maybe unfairly, I kind of equated that with, with the law and kind of said, okay, well, I, I don't think I'm really cut out for one of these jobs where you dress up in a suit and you go sit at a desk. And, you know, kind of worry about things that wouldn't really concern you. Like, it just didn't matter to me. I hate to say this, but it didn't matter to me if the bank's clients made money or lost money. I just wasn't into it. I, it just didn't move me in any kind of way. And, uh, and, and again, I, I think there maybe could have been some areas I could have found in the law that, that would have been exciting for me. But, um, but I kind of made that thought that, no, nah, this isn't, I'm just not cut out for this. And so I had a, a high school friend who was working at a small market in Texas, uh, and he essentially convinced his news director to hire me, even though I didn't have a tape, and he had about 200 tapes sitting in his office. So I, I really lucked out and kind of, you know, I used WNUR certainly as, as one of the big ways to kind of prove that, hey, I'm, I'm serious about this, and, and I had a great experience there and was able to kind of use that to convince him that this just wasn't some sort of crazy whim, that this was something I always wanted to do. But yeah, so that was, that was kind of how I got into it. And I guess what, like a year or two later, you're at ESPN. Three um, years. Yeah. I did two years uh, in Sherman, Texas, and one year in the Quad Cities, which are on the Iowa, Illinois border. What, what, uh, how did the ESPN gig come about? Well, so ESPN was starting something called the ESPN News, which still exists in a very different form to this day. I mean, people are familiar with that network. But the original conception of ESPN News was kind of a 24-hour, half-hour, 24-hour-a-day, half-hour wheel of sports headlines. So as before you get the scores on your phone, it was before they had the bottom line on the TV, and so it was kind of tough to know what was going on. And the, the idea of ESPN News was you could turn it on and you could always find out what was going on in sports in a half hour. So they hired, they were hiring about 14 people, I think, somewhere in that neighborhood. Uh, and that was where I really wanted to go. But uh, they had my tape for quite a while, and I didn't hear from them. I didn't hear from them. And then I got an offer from something called CNN SI, which was actually launching about a month before. And CNN SI was a joint venture of CNN and Sports Illustrated. And it too was going to be on that same concept of 24-hour wheel, half-hour updates. They made me an offer. And then as soon as I got an offer from them, oddly, ESPN suddenly was interested <laughs> and, uh, and fl flew me out. And I did an audition out there. I didn't hear from them for about a week or so. But they did hire me. I think I got the offer. I started like five days before ESPN News was launched. And, and we had a great group of 
men and women, very few of whom are still there. The only ones, well, Mike Greenberg, of course, who's a, a Northwestern grad and a good friend of mine, uh, is still there. Uh, John Butchigross was in that group. And I think that's really it. I think everyone else has moved on. But uh, it was a little fraternity kind of, of of people who were all in similar stages in our career and kind of saw this as a big break. And then you just kind of tried to work your way up. And <laughs> frankly, you tried to get off of ESPN News and see if you get on SportsCenter or something else that would interest you. And, and I was really fortunate that happened pretty quickly for me and got a lot of great opportunities and, and just had an amazing experience there. And then... You spend 10 years ESPN, you go to Big Ten Network where you've been ever since. And uh, one of the things that I saw when I was prepping for this was um, that your Saturdays uh, at Big Ten Network sometimes can be 17 hours long um, because you're there, you know, very early in the morning and then until the last games finish up. What is how, what does the preparation look like for those Saturdays during college football season? Well, yeah, that's a good question, Eric. It is... There's a lot to it. I basically spend about half of the day on Sunday. I usually take Sunday morning off. One of my daughters plays travel soccer. I like to go watch her play. I like to decompress. As you mentioned, I'm, I'm there pretty late on Saturday into Sunday morning. And so I usually, especially if there are night games, I mean, I, I wouldn't get home till well after midnight. And so I sleep for a while and then, you know, maybe go watch some soccer or something like that, you know, have have some time with my wife and my kids. But Sunday afternoon, I start kind of outlining the week. Uh, I have a page on every team in the league where I keep updated stats, updated trends, all that kind of stuff. So you kind of need to go through and update from the, the previous day. And, and I do that part of the day Sunday and then all day Monday. So I kind of have my, my sheets essentially ready to go by Tuesday. Do a couple of shows, Tuesday and Wednesday usually. Then Thursday's a travel day for wherever we're going to do our tailgate pregame show. Uh, we're there on Friday, Howard Griffith, Jerry DiNardo, and I, and we'll do some updates and, you know, kind of previews for the game. And then Saturday morning, we do the tailgate show, and then I hightail it back to BCN. And uh, depending on where we are, I mean, if we're in Evanston, I can get back there in 45 minutes. If we're in State College, a little bit more of a challenge. But uh, whenever I get back, kind of take a little time to figure out what's going on and then hop back on the air and, and take it through the rest of the day in, until we're done, until uh, we do the final drive, which you know airs after the, the last football game is done. So uh, I'd say the preparation is, is a big part of it. But then Saturday, it's just all about reacting. So kind of the preparation puts you in a spot where you know the major storylines, you've got you know, this team's won 11 of the last 13 in this series, that kind of thing, where you have it all ready to go so that when something happens, you can kind of instantly react. But most of the day is watching the games and picking the brains of our analysts as, as we watch together, or in my case, if I'm getting back to campus, you know, sometimes I'm listening to games, I got my serious radio set up so that I can see, you know, hear what's going on. And in all these games in a weird sort of way, it really kind of focuses you. And uh, so I, I, I haven't really ever felt like, well, okay, I missed the first half of this game visually. You know, it's, it's amazing what you can pick up from, from listening to a radio call. But when I get back to BTN, I kind of, you know, I'll, I'll make sure I ask the analyst, hey, is there anything I, I really need to know here that, that maybe I didn't see? 
Um, and if I'm flying, you know, you can always watch. So, so that part of it is great. Um, so anyway, yeah, that's, uh, that's the deal. And then just kind of it's, it's reacting to the games, reacting to the storylines. Uh, most of it is leaning on analysts. You know, those are the experts. And so kind of seeing what, asking them what they saw and making sure you put them in a position to say what they want to say. I mean, that's really my job. I'm a traffic cop. My, my job is not to analyze the game. It's to ask the right questions for the people who are going to analyze the game and, and get them into a situation where they can convey what they want to convey. I'm curious, as a Northwestern alum and someone who probably covers a lot of Northwestern games, how, how long did it take you to really kind of put the fandom aside and just really focus on being objective? I think the really cool thing about this particular job very different from working at ESPN, which was a wonderful experience, but you're in the studio in Bristol, Connecticut. And I would, I was able to get out and do some play-by-play -play for basketball. But by and large, you're removed from it. So you cover games, but you don't really, you report on games, but you, you don't cover them in the way where you develop relationships with people, uh, at least certainly not in the position that I was in as, as a studio anchor. It's different at BTN. I mean, we're out in a typical year, this, of course, has been as atypical as they get, but we do this preseason bus tour where Howard and Jerry and I get on a bus and go around for 18 days and watch every team practice, and that's kind of how we do our, our season previews. We talk to coaches. We talk to players. And that's a long way of saying you feel really connected to these programs. And, and so I think it's not so much – I want – you know, I obviously want Northwestern to do well. It's the school I went to, and, and so you do have a, a connection there. But I want them all to do well because I now have a connection at all these different places and, and you gain an appreciation, you know, you go to training camp and this isn't a pick on a particular school, but like, let's use Rutgers last year who had a terrible year. And I think if you're kind of removed from it, you could say you, you'd almost be snarky about it. And, but, but when you watch them practice in 95 degrees in August and you see how hard those kids are working, how much it means to them, I think that helps you kind of develop an affinity and an understanding for, for everyone in the league. But, um, you know, so you, you just, I have such a sense of what goes into it. I have such a sense of what's in, how everyone is invested. And then there's kind of a belief that, look, if the league does well, we do well as a network. And so, you know, you kind of find yourself just rooting for the league's success because that means good things for us. It means going to the college football playoff or, you know, going uh, to the NCAA tournament to the Final Four, those trips are important for us. That kind of visibility and, and that success is, is really important. So it's not that I don't wish Northwestern well, because obviously I do. I mean, I grew up going to Northwestern games. My dad was a, a Kellogg professor. Both my parents went there. But I wish well to everyone in the league. And, and so, you know, I think that's kind of how you I divorced yourself from the fandom a bit because certainly when I was at ESPN, I didn't look at it that way. Like I was just kind of, you know, unabashed. This is my school. But, but I think now in this position, I've just come to look at it differently. What are you doing in the spring when football and men's basketball season are over? I'm decompressing, I think is the biggest thing. We do a lot of spring football. So April is a pretty busy month. But yeah, you know, I basically work six and a half days a week <laughs> uh, from the beginning of August through the certainly through the final four and then April maybe is a little bit easier so May and June I'd say are pretty you know if there's a coach fired or something like that 
we come in and do a news conference, there always seems to be some sort of news. There might be something that that brings me in. Uh, but by and large, I don't really cover, you know, we do a baseball and softball show um, in the spring. I generally don't work on that. So I'm, I'm pretty much football and men's basketball is, is really my main commitment. I get a couple months to kind of make up for the fact that, that I didn't have many days off for, for eight or nine months. And then we're really like by mid-July, you're kind of back into it a little bit. And you have the kickoff luncheon usually at the end of July. And then August, you're getting on that bus. So, um, you know, it's got a really nice rhythm to it. Those those down months for me are really important and, and have kind of allowed me to have a, some semblance of a more normal life because uh, this is a, a job where I'm on the road uh, probably between 75 and 100 nights a year and miss out on a lot of stuff. I miss out on a lot of my kids' sporting events and just a lot of things I kind of can't go to and I'm not complaining about it, but the trade-off is to, to have that time in, in May and June and part of July where we can kind of just be a family. One of the things I think is interesting about your career, Dave, compared to the other people I've had on the podcast is you've done anchoring play-by-play and you've written a book. Um, and I'm curious, like, I, those are, those are skills that are obviously, they have their unique components, but there's also um, commonalities in what you need to be good at to be successful in all three of those. Can you speak to what some of those commonalities are and why you've been able to be successful in all three? Well, I think the biggest commonality is storytelling. I think ultimately, it's something that I'm not sure I really realize. I'm not a formally trained journalist. And so it does kind of take you some time to figure the business out and, and particularly going and reporting local news. I mean, I really had never done that. I'd never done anything approaching that. And so I started to understand what a good story is. And a good story is about people. And so I think the biggest thing that I learned in doing local news is personalize your stories. People don't necessarily care, or, or it's, it's hard to grab people with a story about taxation, let's just say, or about medical care in the kind of in, in the broad sense of it, trying to, you know, a, a good story doesn't just explain the components of this medical plan or this taxation plan. You lose people. But if you show them a person who's affected by it profoundly, that will stick with them. And I think that was the biggest thing that I learned in local news. And then I took that into sports. I mean, when I, when I announce a game, you really want to explain why is this player interesting? What's the story behind the story here? Obviously, there's kind of a um, there's a responsibility to describe the action. I mean, that is your that is the the holding to a little less so on TV than on the radio. But but can you paint that picture? Can you tell that story? Can you make people who might not otherwise care care? Why is this person interesting? Why is this team interesting? And and obviously, writing a book is is all about telling a story. So I think that's the biggest common thread for me is, is I have become, I think, a, a pretty good storyteller and someone who's able to, to humanize stories for people maybe in a, in a way that, that connects. I want to shift to the current times we're in. Um, 
probably one of the reasons we're able to have this conversation because you're probably a little bit less busy right now. <laughs> what's it what's it been like for you, particularly, I guess, a month or so ago, covering the madness of the Big Ten deciding to postpone football season? I think it's been a really challenging time, Eric. I'd, I'd be lying if I didn't say that. I really love this league. Uh, I think really highly of the new commissioner, Kevin Warren. We forged a very good relationship in a short period of time. And I just know it's been an incredibly challenging time for him. Um, I have incredible relationships with the coaches in our league and with athletic directors. And so you're kind of connected from all over the place. And all of these different people are, are struggling in different ways, you know, from Ryan Day and Scott Frost and some of these coaches who have been outspoken from athletic directors who are kind of trying to work as go-betweens. There are some university presidents I know a little bit too, uh, the people who ultimately have these votes. And, and so it's just kind of this, from all sides, you know, kind of thinking, man, it, it, it's, it's tough to watch the, the league struggle a little bit. And I do think it's, it's been a challenging time. I think anyone who, who would say otherwise, I don't think would be entirely truthful about it. So so I just think it's been tough. Um, and I, you know, I guess I just, I hope, I understand why the, the conference did what it did. I really just think it boils down to ultimately, they don't want to put players on the field unless they're 100% sure they don't have the virus and they just didn't feel like testing was at that place. Uh, and maybe it will be here soon. I mean, there's these rapid antigen tests are, are really promising. But anyway, you know, that's kind of where we are. And, and so I understand it, but, but it doesn't make it any easier to to watch and and it's really tough i mean you know this week i i mean i watch i'm not a huge nfl guy but you know so uh, just for an example thursday night you've got you know miami university of miami playing and then you've got the the texans and the chiefs normally i would watch the miami game i'd watch miami uab even though i know it's the defending super bowl champs great game i'm just a college football guy I, you know that's kind of that's more my sport but I watched the Texans and the Chiefs because it was just depressing to watch college football for me to, to know that, that these teams are playing and, and that our, our league, at least right now, is it, it, it just is tough. I had uh, Nicole Auerbach on the podcast last week, and um, I asked her, uh, we were talking about you know her covering and reporting on the Big Ten postponing its season, and she said she really didn't get much sleep that week or so period when those uh, decisions were being made. Is that? Do you have that experience too, where you're where you're not sleeping as much because you're you're waiting for the news to break, or are you more just because you're on television, you can kind of get a regular night's sleep, wake up and see what's going on, and then report on it? I'm not a great sleeper to begin with, so uh, I don't know if it affected me in in quite that this particular deal uh, impacted me in quite that way, but but that is a challenge. You know, it's really I mean one of the biggest things about kind of our schedule is the irregular nature of it. You know, I'm someone who, if I had my druthers, I'd go to bed at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock every night. But when, when you're on the air until midnight, or I was at ESPN, when you're hosting a sports center that begins at 2 a.m. local time, uh, your body clock gets really messed up. And, and so I do think that's one of the, the big challenges of this job. And I, but I think what Nicole's getting at more is that it kind of weighs on you. You know, these stories do weigh on you and, and your mind kind of starts to race a little bit as to, to what it's going to be. And, and I haven't, I'm considerably older than, than Nicole is. She works with us and does an incredible job. She's been amazing on, on this story in, in particular, but I, I just think she's an incredibly talented reporter. But, um, 
but yeah, I mean, I, I, that's, that's a phenomenon I've had at different times in my career, whether it's the stories weighing on you, you're just excited. I mean, I think one of the cool things about this job and one of the things I love about it is there are days that I just get fired up for football Saturdays in general. I can't wait for them to start. Can't wait for that, for that morning. And, and so sometimes Friday nights are, a little bit of a challenge to kind of turn your mind off and, and go to bed because you know that, you got, as I said, uh, as you said, a 17-hour day or, or more ahead of you. You mentioned a couple moments ago the relationship with Kevin Warren and how you guys have been able to develop that in a short period of time. And I want to ask you about the interview you did with him after the Big Ten mm-hmm. decided to postpone the season um, because that was the first time he spoke after the decision was made. Um, you You probably know going in that he's not going to be disclosing all the information he has that went into the decision. So how do you approach that type of interview? Well, I think as an interviewer, I always look at it. My job is to get answers, not to ask questions. I mean, you have to ask questions to get the answers, but I go into it thinking, okay, what are the answers that I want to get? If I'm sitting at home and I'm a big 10 fan or a a journalist who doesn't have the opportunity that I have to, to talk to him, what do I want to know? And so I asked the questions to elicit those answers. And in a few occasions, I felt like I hadn't gotten a sufficient answer. And so I asked the question again in a slightly different way to see whether or not that might pull it out. Uh, so yeah, that was a challenging interview. There's no question about it. You know, we're in a unique spot, Eric. I mean, we're a partner with the league. We are an equity partner. Every school in the conference has an equity share in the Big Ten Network. And so it's, it is a little different. And, and there are a lot of these arrangements now in, in journalism. And I would say in some ways, it's not that different even from being at ESPN. I mean, it's not equity share, but they're a partner with the NFL. They're a partner with Major League Baseball. Some of those, those lines are blurred. And I, I sometimes felt like at ESPN, and again, I don't mean this in a negative way at all, because I had an incredible experience there. But at least when I was there, it was like, okay, if we're going to do some really hard journalism here, we're going to pass off to Bob Lee and outside the lines and kind of use that as our, our shelter for it. Now, I, think, I do think that that has changed a, a little bit. But there is this challenge where you felt like you're, you, you have this connection. It's more overt at, at BTN. And so that is a, you're, you're cognizant of that. But you're also cognizant of the fact that people rely on you for news. And you can't be just this mouthpiece for the league because then no one will trust you. I I think that our relationship more than anything, the relationship that I have with big 10 fans and the BTN has more broadly is about trust. And it's about them saying, when I turn on the big 10 network, I know that I'm going to get a, a straight story. We will certainly let whoever it is in the big 10 kind of say their piece and we're, you know, we're not going to kind of go out of our way to, to attack somebody, not what we do, but, but hey, we're going to tell you the story. And I felt like my job with Kevin Warren was to try to find out what the story is, because I was the person who had access to him. And if I didn't do that, I was doing a disservice to myself as a professional, and I was doing a disservice to people who were watching. And, and you said that... Um... You know, you in that interview, you had to ask the same question in a different way twice um, because you didn't get a direct answer. Um, when you don't get a direct answer the second time, is it just, all right, well, that's the audience. The, the viewer's job now is just to interpret that and say, well, he doesn't want to answer this question for a particular reason. 
or do you just keep trying to harp on it because you really want to get that answer? Well, I think you kind of have to make a decision in your head as to whether or not you're ever going to get it. And for me, it became apparent, I think, in each of those follow-ups that the commissioner wasn't going to give me exactly the answer that I want to get for whatever reason. And I do think, I mean, look, you can be really hostile about it, I suppose. And, and I think that there are situations where, hey, I have to get an answer. You have to tell me. Um, but I felt like in, in those situations, I think in each one of them, I'd have to watch it back again. I, I haven't actually watched the entire interview back. But I think in those, each of those situations, we got a little bit more insight maybe with the, the second answer. But yeah, I mean, at a certain point, I just think otherwise, you, you know, so again, you're kind of, there's a calculation on the whole interview. If you know this thing could go 20 was, as I recall, what changed in these six days from when we released the schedule to where we are now, where we're postponing the season. I didn't really get the answer I was looking for, and I asked it again in, in a slightly different way, or I, actually, I, I think in a fairly similar way, uh, I think of it. Okay, so at that point, you're like, okay, well, I've got a dozen more questions that I want to ask here, and if, if I just kind of lose it on this one and just dig my heels in and say I'm not going any further until I get the specific answer I'm looking for, I mean, the entire interview may just blow up. So I think that's the calculus. And that's where you are as an interviewer all the time is trying to think about, okay, what's, where's this going? What's the road that I want to be on here? And if I get off that road, how hard would it be to, to get back on and get satisfactory answers to all the other questions that I had? It's not like that was the only question. And so how do you, how do you navigate that? And I think that's one of the challenges of of being an interviewer and it's something that I've worked really hard on and in, in, in my career because I think that it's a pretty important skill. That was my discussion with Dave Refson of the Big Ten Network. As with all my guests, really enjoyed this conversation. And you know, as I said during the interview, Dave brings a unique perspective to somebody who A didn't study journalism in college and B does anchoring, play-by-play broadcasting, and some writing. So it was interesting to hear him talk about how he developed uh, an understanding of how to approach all three of those in a way that um, will make him successful in all three. And it was also great to talk about the Kevin Warren interview with him because that got a lot of traction um, right after he did it, most notably because Commissioner Warren did not answer most of his questions directly, um, and Dave really handled it very well. So it was great to hear a little bit behind the scenes of how he approached um, such a high-pressure interview in a very high-stakes environment. So that's episode 14 of Interviewing the Interviewer with Dave Revson. I'm Eric Rinston Lobel. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll be back next week with another episode.